Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Today we're going to cover sort of two uh, very different topics, although there is some link because I see Christian's put some COVID-related stuff in his gynae talk. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about um, COVID and probably long COVID and some of the things that um, we will experience again coming, but also what have we learnt in phase one um, before we come into the second phase. Um, locally, we still get very low um, numbers. Uh, I was on a call yesterday, and certainly in Hampshire and Dorset and Wiltshire, we're not seeing the pinks that um, are at the peaks that they're seeing in other parts of the country. But you know, it is quite likely that it's going to come to us soon. So uh, we we better be prepared. So I don't know, Nick and Will, who wants to start? Um, My talk is larger around testing. Um, and it's um, I thought it would be appropriate to label it testing times, which which they are for a number of reasons, actually. And I was going to give you a bit of a background as to um, how we've got to where we are with testing at Hampshire hospitals, um, a little bit about the performance of the tests, and then a little bit about looking into the future in terms of um, what may be future developments coming our way. Um, as you can see, I, I work in Hampshire hospitals. I'm also, uh, as a Gibraltarian, I'm also the consultant microbiologist for the Gibraltar Health Authority as well, uh, in addition to my um, affiliations with the University of Southampton. So I think you're all familiar with, with the, it was a New Year's Eve actually, that the WHO were informed about the cluster of cases of pneumonia of unknown cause in Wuhan City, Hubei province, China. Um, by the 12th of January, uh, a novel coronavirus was being identified as the cause, um, which uh, has it was initially named something different, but has now been uh, named uh, SARS-CoV-2 and the disease COVID-19. On the 17th of January 2020, there was an early communication of a real-time polymerase chain reaction, PCR method, for how to detect SARS-2 released by the World Health Organization. And it was very much a preliminary um, uh, sort of method. And then this uh, was released in a publication by a group um, with Professor Christian Drosten from Berlin, where they actually gave a method as to how to go about testing for SARS-2. And it was almost like this is a this is a recipe, this is a way of uh, a protocol for laboratories to follow to get up and running with testing. So uh, I think you're all familiar with SARS-2 being a coronavirus named because of the, um, the uh, image on electron microscope and we have an electron microscope picture that I can show you later just showing how it looks like the corona around the sun. It's one of a number of coronaviruses that infect us. Um, there are at least four or five common coronaviruses that cause, to all intents and purposes, a common cold, and we encounter very regularly. There are other coronaviruses that are, have more uh, higher case fatality rate, such as the original SARS-1, which was um, uh, became a problem in 2002, 2003, um, to the one that we have been worried about more recently of all the coronaviruses, which is MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, which has a much higher case fatality rate. So just to give you an illustration, the, the case fatality rate for SARS was in the order of around 8 to 
the case fatality rate for MERS is usually in the 30 to 40% range. And obviously the case fatality rate for, um, for COVID is, is, is lower, estimated to be around, depends on the population, but it's, it's probably around the 1% or below now in terms of its true case fatality rate. Um, MERS luckily doesn't have the infectivity that SARS-2 has and that COVID has because that is a, is a very geographically contained uh, coronavirus to the Middle East and particular contacts with camel and camel milk. So it's a coronavirus uh, and uh, linked to Wuhan. So a little bit about laboratory techniques to detect viruses. Um, so you, you've probably heard a lot in the press about antigen versus antibody tests for, for um, viral diagnostics and what do they mean. Um, an antigen test, really you're detecting the actual virus in one form or other. Um, and that can be by visualizing it, which isn't, it isn't easy to do. It's, it requires an electron microscope, which is the size of a small room, and it's very insensitive but it does allow you to visualize the virus. And this is a picture, an electron micrograph of SARS-2 as a coronavirus. And you can see its uh, circular structure with these projections, which give it the title of a coronavirus. From that's where the, the actual family name comes from. And this has come from a professor in Australia in Sydney who emailed th this image of the uh, coronavirus to us. Electromicroscopy, we don't, not, not many labs do it. So the other ways of looking for the virus historically was by growing it. But again, not many labs do this anymore because it's slow. It takes 48, 72 hours. It takes a lot of manpower to do it. Um, so we're left with either tagging antibodies um, to the virus, which generally happens more with cellular material. That's something that we would do with biopsies and tissues, not applicable for COVID. Then that leaves us with antigen detection and molecular detection methods. Um, antigen detection looks for viral antigens, viral proteins by using an, an enzyme immunoassay. And those tend to work on the basis of a lateral flow device similar to a pregnancy test as molecular detection looks for the specific viral sequence of that, organism, of that organism, which may be through a PCR technique, or there are other techniques, and I'll come to talk a little bit more about LAMP uh, as another methodology, which is gaining attention in the news and traction locally as well. And then the other way of detecting a viral infection is to almost look in the mirror, to look at what the, what the immune response to the virus has been. And that is by doing antibody tests, largely uh, serology, but increasingly, there is this um, ability to detect cell-mediated immunity. And we do that for um, infections such as TB by measuring the interferon gamma response in IGRAs, in quantiferon and T-spot tests. And that is now increasingly applicable to other infections as well. So what, what were our options locally in Hampshire hospitals? So in the last week of January, as the pandemic was, was gathering pace, uh, Public Health England announced that they had testing for SARS-2 at the Central Virus Reference Department in Collindale. So that involved us sending samples up to London for testing with a turnaround time of anywhere between 24 to 72 hours. Um, that... Um, at around the same time, with the publication of that Drosten paper, the German paper I mentioned, 
Steve Kidd, who's our clinical scientist at Hampshire Hospital, said, I can develop us a test. And he, I said, you know, we told him, well, yeah, go for it. Let's, let's get a test in-house because we're going to need one pretty soon. Um, and it so transpired that you know, the central lab in Collendale rapidly got overwhelmed by tests and PHE had to then create other testing centres regionally. Um, and for us, it was Southampton, which have, up until very recently were a public health England laboratory. They just stopped being a public health England laboratory, but they were recommissioned to provide the service as the regional testing centre for the entire, entire southeast. So that involved samples coming to them from all the way from Kent, um, all the way, you know, Reading, us. So they, again, rapidly got overwhelmed and their turnaround times went up. So we, uh, Steve got us up and running and by the 6th of March, 2020, we were up and running f with our own in-house PCR test for SARS-CoV-2. Um, one of the first trusts in the country outside the PHE centers to be able to do this. And on that day, we detected our first positive case in a local resident who'd returned from Northern Italy. So, um, you know, in terms of getting a test up and running, and I, it was really very, very quick indeed. In terms of polymerase chain reactions, I don't want to bore you too much with the exact science. You're probably all familiar with it, but um, you're in essence, you need the sequence of the organism of, in this case, the virus to detect a target sequence, um, a target sequence, which may be in either RNA or DNA. In this illustration, it's DNA. You then need to obtain the RNA and DNA from the sample by a process called extraction of RNA or DNA. And then after that, you need to, um, for DNA, you need to denature it to separate the two strands so that you can get to the primer sequence that you need. And then primers in the mix, in the reaction mix, which are specific for that target sequence that you need, that base pair sequence, if that sequence is present, will bind to that and create new copies of the gene. And that happens through a repeated process in PCR um, of thermocycling, where the PCR will heat and cool up to 45 times within a very short space of time to get these cycles of PCR. Um, and in real-time PCR, what happens is that the primers are, have an attached fluorophore, and as the primers are incorporated, the fluorophore is released, and the fluorophore is then measured by... Um, the analyzer, which then real-time detects a, the presence of the fluorophore, which means that the primers are, are finding their, their target. And that is uh, measured in analytical um, you know, machines, which initially were, were the size of half a room, but now are becoming increasingly benchtop um, uh, devices. So each PCR will go through cycles, and this is something I'll come back to. Um, there's something called a cycle threshold that uh, the PCRs, as I said, it goes through 40-odd cycles of heating and cooling, and your point of detection may happen at any one of those 45 cycles. If it hasn't by cycle 45, that's a negative test. But otherwise, at some point, you'll start seeing amplification, and that is the cycle threshold. And that can be used almost semi-quantitatively at times to work out how much virus there is in that sample. In terms of the PCR genes, the, the, the genes that are targeted for SARS-CoV-2, a whole host of them may be targeted in different combinations. This is an example of, of, of our, some of our setup. Now that's um, already transformed in, this was probably around April time. So um, 
RNA extraction happens in uh, this analyzer. Um, then we have a pipetting robot, and essentially is a robotic device that we can instruct as to which samples to pipette into which tubes. And then those tubes will go into these tiny PCR machines. So these are three PCR machines. Um, one is called Mulder, one is called Scully, and I forget what the other one is called, but they are basically the, the mix that do the Australian uh, machines that will do the PCRs and connect to this PC. All happens on a bench top. This other machine here is another multiplex PCR machine that will run 22 viruses in one test. Unfortunately, although we just bought this machine in January, um, it hadn't, those 22 viruses at that time didn't include SARS-2. They now do. So this is going to be, the BioFi is going to become one of our mainstays of testing rapidly for um, patients on ITU uh, in, the, in the winter months. Analyzers have got smaller, but I think most labs are in need of more space. So what were the challenges in us delivering PCR for a, for a, for a, for a trust? If you're going to design your own PCR, uh, as opposed to relying a, in a sort of black box um, device, then you need to have skilled scientific staff. And I think we're, we're very fortunate at Hampshire Hospitals, uh, as are um, Southampton and Portsmouth, respectively. They have very skilled molecular clinical scientists who are able to develop these tests from um, the bare ingredients. Um, additional, what we found is that additional staff with molecular skills are not in abundance. We have a real dearth of skilled scientists to, to help support testing across the UK, and that's in part why we are in the situation we're in. We've had to bring in postdocs, MSCs. We've established links with local universities to bring in graduates with skills, but not necessarily the diagnostic experience that a trained biomedical scientist would have. Laboratory space is a problem. Most micro labs are tucked away in a basement, um, cramped, hot. Um, we don't have the, the space that's needed to expand rapidly and trust needs to recognize that. Um, reagents were a real problem and they still are to a certain extent, but they were a real problem in March. We were, I think in one day we, we had to switch between four different methods because we kept running out of reagents and the, the, there seems to be a real lack of reagents to get where we wanted to be. And also there's a, lack, there's a lack of capital, which was transiently eased in March, but to establish testing and upscale testing. This is a board that one of our, F, our F1 at the time, Jess Lynch, pulled together. We, we pinned a map on the, on, the, on the board and put pins in where our cases, our first cases were. This is the 8th of March. You can see we had a congregation of cases around Basingstoke, some sort of east of Winchester. And this is the situation uh, a few days later. But then by the 24th of March, we'd gone to, this is our first 100 cases, um, showing um, where, they, where they were distributed. And at some point between the 13th and 24th, the instruction came from, NA, from PHE that we were to stop offering the community testing that we had been offering in the early stages of the outbreak. So how can we ensure sustainable testing for SARS-2, i.e. not putting all eggs in one basket, speed up to reduce hands-on time and test nearer the patient? Well, we looked at new technologies. Um, LAMP is a one such technology. It's incredibly complicated. I'm not going to go through this in much detail, but generally PCR relies on two primers to identify the gene, 
lamp relies on six primers and creates loops these loops which then create a almost like a cascade reaction of amplification in the chemistry it's a test which has been used a lot in veterinary and plant health but not much in human health uh, in the uk at least but it's been used a lot in third world for zika malaria and leishmania detection but that is a test that we uh, decided to um, pursue um, using some uh, machines from a well-established company, a UK company called Optogene, and they have a, a range of lamp assays for animal and plant health. And they had developed one for um, SARS-2 on their Genie analyzers. Uh, and it works in a similar way with an amplification curve, but actually instead of a CT value, you get a time to positivity. And you'll notice here that the time is measured in minutes. And this is the, 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 the beauty of the lamp test is that it's quick. If you can do the lamp test you know, RNA extraction takes around 30 minutes. The lamp test then takes about 20, but you can also do lamp direct from the sample without extracting the RNA. And that gives you 20 minutes to test result, which is why this is quite an attractive proposition. They both look for a viral RNA. They're both antigen tests in that colloquial form, although they are molecular detection tests. Um, because LAMP doesn't require the repeated cycles of heating and cooling that uh, a normal PCR does, it's, it, that's what makes it quicker. So it can be, uh, the assay time can be sub 20 minutes. In terms of sensitivity, um, after RNA extraction, it's comparable. If you do it direct from a swab, you drop your sensitivity for your low levels of virus. So some of the work that we've done here, which is now being expanded nationally, looking at LAMP, we compared it with our PCR. And for people who've got a lot of virus, that is, they don't need many cycles of PCR to detect it, LAMP in both its forms detected all of those 100% uh, of the time. Got a couple so, of minutes, Nick, okay. Okay, okay, sure. Uh, and and as, you, as you go through into, into other ranges, it, it drops less. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a bit of an illustration here as to the, as to the, um, these are the groups that we test um, in, in Hampshire hospitals in terms of by qPCR and who we test by LAMP. Um, we tested for staff here well ahead of the national directive and the ask for us in uh, winter is a need to test all admissions for COVID, a need to test all symptomatic admissions additionally for flu and RSV, which poses a huge challenge to any uh, uh, acute trust to, to deliver. We've um, performed around 30,000 tests. We've detected 1,500 roughly with a 60-40 split between patients and NHS staff. I'm going to whiz through some of these um, slides just to uh, give you a bit of a flavor. You're all familiar with the swabs, which can be healthcare workers collected or self-directed. Saliva is a sample type which is gaining traction. It's probably as good as a swab for certain groups of patients. If you've got somebody who's highly symptomatic and they test negative on an upper track sample, be it saliva or a swab, then we'd be looking at getting a lower track sample such as a sputum or bronchoalveolar lavage. I'm going to um, move through some of these and give you a bit of a feel about infectiousness. When to test? Well, the peak viral load is on the day of onset of symptoms, but you start shedding virus 48 hours pre-symptoms and the duration of shedding can depend on, on the patient, but it's, it's the same whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic. But some patients can shed virus for up to 
six or eight weeks or shed detectable RNA for up to six to eight weeks. What, that, what we're not clear on is whether that correlates to infectious virus or not. And in most cases, beyond day eight, some day 10, then even though you may have a PCR that's positive, the virus isn't recoverable. It isn't culturable at all. So beyond, at this point, your ability to pick up transmissible virus really drops quite significantly. And you might have read about virus being shedding in feces, which can last for six to eight weeks, but this is not recoverable. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how good are the tests. There's been a lot in the news about that, about some, uh, there's a difference here, which I want to sort of finish on this point about analytical sensitivity and specificity versus clinical diagnostic sensitivity and the positive and negative predictive values. The analytical sensitivity is how well these tests perform in the lab with a known positive and a known negative. And for many of the PCR tests, they are very highly sensitive and specific. However, in the news, you will have heard that the diagnostic sensitivity could be anywhere between 71 and 98%. And that is um, influenced by a number of factors, not only about the test used, but the sample quality, the integrity of the sample, the site of infection and the shedding of SARS-2 can vary within the airways from the upper and lower tract. Um, and then the other thing looking at how a test performs is in the population is its positive and negative predictive value in terms of pre and protest, uh, post-test probability. And that, and that is important when you're choosing the right test for the right scenario. So for diagnostic testing, we're looking for excellent sensitivity. We really want to find every little scrap of RNA for population-based screening, which is now something which is happening more locally within pilots in Southampton, then we are looking to identify those who are the high shedders of virus. And what we don't want to do, what we want to identify was those high shedders and those that are transmissible to others to control transmission and lower the R number. But what we really want to do is also avoid finding huge numbers of false positives. Uh, because then that would lead to unnecessary isolation of large numbers of the population and their contacts. And a rapid turnaround is needed in both scenarios. I'll just check on time there, Nigel. How am I doing? Is that the two minutes? Yeah, you, you've had your time, Nick. Okay. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much. Um, let's move straight on to Will, who's a respiratory physician um, who has um, some experience of um, not only COVID, but some of the, hopefully, the long COVID things, which are a bit of a mystery to many GPs. So I'll immediately hand over to you, Will. Thanks very much, and thanks for inviting me to, to come and talk. So I, I thought I would just start off by talking a bit of a background about COVID and follow-up, and uh, then talk about some of the local Hampshire hospitals experience um, in terms of data and to go through three case studies, and then talk about some respiratory follow-up pulmonary rehabilitation and some other considerations. So next slide. Um, so we know uh, COVID-19 is a multi-system disease and the severity of illness is highly variable from um, the well-documented asymptomatic carriers right through to the patients with fulminant respiratory failure needing ventilatory support and um, the high incidence of mortality in these patients. Um, and the long-term sequelae of the infection remains uncertain. And a lot of the evidence that we're using to um, base follow-up arrangements on are from previous coronavirus outbreaks, um, which have shown that um, patients have seen impaired pulmonary function, impaired physical function, quality of life, and emotional distress in the, in the aftermath of the actual acute virus. So next slide. 
So over um, the first wave of the virus, if you like, between March and June, there were 612 um, inpatient admissions to Hampshire hospitals, 388 in Basingstoke and 224 in Winchester, with a mean age in the late 60s. A sizable proportion of these patients required intensive care input, and sadly, 162 of the patients, which is 26% of these patients died. The next slide. So just to illustrate some of the um, cases that we were seeing, I've chosen three cases to go through um, briefly. The first one uh, is a lady, um, 58 years old, who worked as a radiographer at Basingstoke Hospital and presented with history of fever, cough and breathlessness. She had tested positive for COVID prior to her admission, but had deteriorated at home and was admitted to hospital on the 20th of April. And this is her admission chest X-ray and shows what we were seeing very typically in these patients who were presenting to hospital with these diffuse pulmonary infiltrates um, throughout both lungs and associated with that low oxygen saturations at 90% on air. Uh, she was treated with oxygen therapy and antibiotics to cover added bacterial infection and made a good recovery and was discharged on day seven of her illness, uh, the 27th of April. And since discharge, we followed up with a chest x-ray. Next slide. And pleasingly, that has shown that those pulmonary infiltrates have completely resolved and the chest x-ray has returned to normal and she's made a full clinical recovery and has returned to work. So next slide, uh, case two, is a 48-year-old Nepalese gentleman who worked as a security guard, and he again presented with fever, cough, and breathlessness, and um, this was his admission chest x-ray, which is clearly extremely abnormal, and on the day of his admission, he was rapidly and transferred to the intensive care unit where he was intubated and ventilated. Next slide, please. I've just um, shown these three slices of his CT scan that he had when in intensive care. The first one at the top is a section through the trachea. Then the next one in the middle is at the carina and the one at the bottom is the, uh, at the lung bases really just to show the um, extent of the um, infiltrates and consolidation within the lungs and the ground glass inflammatory changes that we were seeing in these patients with the more severe disease. He had a, a very stormy um, ITU stay where he required hemofiltration for acute kidney injury. He had seizures, which turned out to be a viral encephalitis and deranged liver function, which was thought either be to, to be due to his medications or possibly a direct effect of the, the COVID infection. He was in ITU for just over three weeks um, before being discharged to the ward, having recovered from the acute uh, respiratory failure, but with a significant ongoing post-ITU myopathy and eventually was discharged from hospital on the 30th of April after a month in hospital for rehabilitation. Uh, next slide, please. We, we followed him up since discharge with this repeat chest x-ray, which pleasingly shows a significant improvement in, his, um, in the x-ray appearance and just some residual changes in the right mid-zone, I think you can see there, hopefully. Um, and he's going to go on to have some further imaging. 
but he's made a good clinical recovery and is now in the process of returning to work in a, a sort of phased return. Next slide, please. So this is the, um, the third case. Uh, this is a 64-year-old patient who worked as a nurse at Basingstoke Hospital, who again presented the same way as the other three with fever, cough, and breathlessness. And uh, her admission oxygen saturations were down in the low 80s. And next slide. After just 24 hours of her admission, her clinical condition deteriorated quite dramatically and she was transferred to the intensive care unit. And you can see there's diffuse pulmonary infiltrates of the viral pneumonitis on her chest x-ray there. Next slide, please. Um, she had a CT scan as well, which I think you can see shows diffuse changes, uh, very much the typical picture we were seeing in the patients who had CT scans with diffuse ground glass opacification um, throughout both lungs showing active inflammation and very little in the way of um, clear or normal lungs. And at the bases, you can see the sort of dense consolidation in, which significantly impacts on their um, ventilation. She also had a very difficult intensive care stay where she was also diagnosed on that CT scan with a pulmonary embolus. And she also developed a COVID myopericarditis and had significant dysrhythmias, which were difficult to manage. After, um, again, just over three weeks, she was discharged from ITU, having made some recovery, um, but with, again, significant post-ITU myopathy and um, was in hospital until the 1st of June when she was discharged for rehabilitation. Next slide, please. So after discharge in follow-up, we've repeated her chest X-ray, and the chest X-ray, unfortunately, is showing quite persistent reticular nodular changes. And so we've, again, gone on to do a, a further CT scan. Next slide, please. Which, whilst it shows resolution of a lot of those inflammatory ground glass opacities that you saw on the previous scan, there are now these subpleural reticular changes, which are much more in keeping with an established pulmonary fibrosis. And down on the lower slide, you can see um, some dilated airways consistent with traction bronchiectasis, suggesting more established interstitial lung disease and pulmonary fibrosis now. Next slide, please. She's also had pulmonary function tests, which show that she's got a severe restrictive defect as a consequence of this illness. And speaking to her now, she um, is making a very slow recovery and has really stalled in her recovery and is still um, symptomatically very impaired um, and has not yet returned to work now three, nearly four months from, from the point of initial illness. Next slide, please. So we know that, well, the prevalence of post-COVID-19 respiratory complications isn't yet known. Um, but in survivors from the SARS and MERS um, cases, the prevalence of pulmonary fibrosis and physiological impairment is as high as 60% in the region of 20 to 60% of patients have ongoing physiological impairment. And we also know that from the the recent pandemic that a lot of these patients are also seeing thromboembolic complications with pulmonary emboli and so there's concern about possible risk of um, long-term pulmonary vascular disease and pulmonary hypertension. Next slide please. And the British Thoracic Society have um, provided guidance on how these patients should be followed up which I've summarized on the next slide. 
um, which is that patients should have an early follow-up chest X-ray um, as early as six weeks after discharge in patients who've been on intensive care and before 12 weeks in patients who require hospital admission. And the suggestion is that if that chest X-ray has returned to normal and the patient's symptoms have recovered, that they can be discharged with advice for re-referral if they develop new persistent or progressive respiratory symptoms. That if they do have persistent changes on their X-rays, then the guidance is that those patients should have further physiological testing with spirometry and gas transfer and a functional assessment with a six-minute walk test and further cross-sectional imaging, depending on their presentation, either an HRCT scan, a CT pulmonary angiogram, or a combination of both. Next slide, please. And the, the common symptoms that we're seeing in these patients in follow-up are breathlessness, cough, and fatigue. Breathlessness is extremely common in the patients who've been hospitalized, and very few of them have quickly recovered. Um, with lots of them displaying bre um, breathlessness worse than pre-illness um, up to months after the, uh, the actual acute, um, acute episode. This is thought to be less common in patients who haven't required hospitalization and so patients who, who weren't hospitalized, who were thought to have COVID, who are breathless, need further investigations by way initially of a chest x-ray and may require a referral for further assessment. Cough is also a persistent um, problem. Lots of patients continuing to cough. Um, this is something which is expected to, to settle down. Um, it's important to rule out other causes of the cough. And if you can exclude other causes of cough, then some of these patients might benefit from referral to a physiotherapist for breathing control exercises. Fatigue is very common, um, particularly in patients who've been admitted to hospital and to ITU and is well recognized in SARS, MERS and patients who've recovered from severe pneumonia. Um, the, these patients sort of generally do slowly recover over time um, and there is possible benefit from graded exercise programs, although there's uncertain evidence for that. Next slide, please. What we think will be beneficial to these patients is pulmonary rehabilitation and pulmonary rehab is um, defined as a personalized evaluation and treatment, including exercise training, education and behavioral modification to improve physical and psychological condition of people with respiratory disease. Um, that's a sort of standard pulmonary rehabilitation course, which um, goes for between six to eight weeks delivered by a multi-professional team, generally physios and nurses. Um, and traditionally it's been delivered either in a hospital or outpatient setting, but increasingly is being delivered in a home-based or virtual um, manner. Next slide, please. And there's some very good evidence for pulmonary rehab in chronic lung disease, um, that it is cost-effective and effective in reducing symptoms, increasing functional ability, and improving patients' quality of life. And most of that evidence comes um, from studies in COPD, um, showing that even in patients with established and well-advanced lung disease, there is, there is benefits in terms of symptoms and quality of life. And there is also some, or less, but there is still some good evidence for pulmonary rehabilitation in patients who've recovered from severe pneumonia um, for patients with interstitial lung disease and smaller studies in, in patients who've recovered from SARS. Next slide, please. 
the NHS have also um, introduced this website called Your, Your COVID Recovery. Um, this was brought in in early July, and I think there was a promise that this was going to be followed up with a sort of second phase where they were going to introduce rehabilitation for patients with face-to-face -face or telephone contact for patients who've been admitted to hospital, which hasn't quite materialised yet. But nevertheless, this, is a, this website is a very good resource for patients who are recovering from COVID with information about exercises they can do, coming to terms with the disease, coming to terms with the recovery and, and support for, for carers as well. So it's well worth looking at. Next slide, please. And then just some other considerations in COVID follow-up. Um, as I said earlier, it is a multi-organ um, disease and a significant proportion of patients with COVID are getting cardiac complications and we saw a lot in the inpatients, a lot of the inpatients we were treating had a myopericarditis um, or dysrhythmias. And these, it's recognised, can prevent several weeks even after the acute illness, even after discharge, so worth looking out for. And then rare and neurological um, complications with strokes, seizures, encephalitis and cranial neuropathies. And what we're seeing in a lot of the patients we're following up post-discharge is that a lot of them have non-specific neurological symptoms of headache, dizziness, and cognitive blunting, or described in some places as brain fog. Next slide, please. And there's also a significant um, impact of the disease on patients' mental health and well-being um, with significant levels of anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress symptoms in, in recovery. This has to be um, recognised and addressed. And in, the, um, in MERS at 12 months, they found that 27% of patients had symptoms of depression and 44% had symptoms of post-traumatic stress. So I think this really needs to be recognised and addressed. Next slide, please. So just briefly, some take-home messages. I think that um, the current guidance is based on limited evidence and will improve with more experience of following these patients up. Um, most patients do recover, albeit slowly, with a combination of holistic support, rest, symptomatic treatment, and a gradual increase in their activity. And it's a relatively small proportion of patients who go on to develop established pulmonary fibrosis and or pulmonary vascular disease, but it's important to recognise this and, um, and treat effectively. And finally, just to say, consider referring patients if you're clinically concerned, um, particularly in those patients with new persistent or progressive symptoms in that recovery period. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nick. That um, fits in very well with the uh, testing and where we go, and I'm sure it's a subject we will come back to. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice.